People come to the San Francisco Bay Area for many reasons, a spectacular natural setting, a sophisticated lifestyle, and unique professional opportunities. Those seeking these qualities will find all that and more at Hacienda, where you can work, live, and grow. A Hacienda location means having the best of everything within easy reach. Whether it's world-class restaurants, theaters, and museums, the best learning institutions in the country, or some of the finest services available. That particularly applies to businesses wanting the best address to have easy access to needed resources, being among the industry leaders, and knowing that you are part of a region that leads the world in innovation. The result, an unbeatable combination that leads to success, and that is what you will find at Hacienda. Find out more by visiting Hacienda on the web at hacienda.org. Today's conversation takes us outside of the office and toward art, the art that you usually see in front of buildings and airports and apartment complexes. Gordon Huther is a Napa, California-based artist whose specialty is this type of art, and we talk about the need for more of it across the world. We also discuss his early days and how he got introduced to it, what got him to create, and how, like every other business today, his is also impacted by the logistics issues brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome to the podcast, Gordon. Gordon, uh, good morning. How's it going? Good morning to you. Uh, just another day in paradise. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Where do we find you today? Where Where are you uh, working from? Are you working? What is a sort of a typical day for you look like these days? Well, yeah, so I'm, I'm in my studio here in Napa. Napa Valley. Um, we're actually in the county, just a little bit outside of the city limits. And um, typical day is I get here pretty early. And like everybody else, no matter what business you're in, you're looking at emails. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and try to get put out a few fires and then get into what I really do, which is, you know, being an artist. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. I think when you usually think of, you know, creative folks, you think of the product, but you don't think about that they also do email and, you know, do all these other sort of menial things that everybody else does, text, you know, that kind of stuff. So, well, Gordon, I'm really looking forward to our to our conversation here. Uh, b- before we get started, what I would love for you to do is give us a little bit of a background, you know, you know about you and, you know, who you are and kind of what, what your business is and and what you guys do. Yeah, sure. So, I don't know. Let's see. How long has it been? 35 years since I had a real job, Um, meaning I've been self-employed this all these years and um, self-employed creating art. And it's not kind of what at first blush would when someone hears that they're probably thinking of an artist in their studio painting a painting or uh, or sculpting a bronze with clay and all that kind of stuff. But really. What I do as an artist is I would call it large-scale, site-specific, permanent art installations for universities, for mixed-use development, corporate buildings, libraries, airports, uh, civic centers, parking garages, just super uh, large-scale, multi-ton work that sometimes it's in glass, sometimes it's mixed-media Sometimes it's fiberglass, sometimes it's fabric. Um, so it's kind of all over the map when it comes to materials. And um, really, I would say that I'm a storyteller in the public realm. 
and it's the stories that I tell are other people's stories. So a parking garage in Sunnyvale surrounded with redwood trees has a different story than a airport in Raleigh, Durham, for sure. example. Sure. Gordon, before we get into sort of, you know, how you got into the business of, you know, creating art for these public spaces or, you know, private public spaces, if you will, on a personal note, how did you fall in love with art? Tell us how that process evolved and kind of what do you, is it, was there a moment, was there a time that, that sort of, you know, pushed you in this direction? Well, yeah. So, you know, as a, even as a kid, I was already kind of worrying, so to speak, thinking about what I was going to be when I grew up. Okay. And I, and I was like, I, I remember being like four or five years old, you know, I'm kind of, my face is kind of frowning, my eyebrows, and I'm just thinking, and I got this picture in my head that when you're born, it's like getting on a train. And then life is, as long as the train is moving, and when the train stops, it's time to get off, that's the end of it. So I had this like sense of urgency, like that, oh my God moment. And I thought it was just so important that I figure out who I was and what I was going to do in the short ride that we all get. Right. Yeah. And I decided that I had the heart and soul of an artist and to do anything different than being an artist would be a shame. Right. Cause yeah. you really, people are the, at their best when they are being who they're meant to be. Yeah. And where did that proverbial voyage start? Was it uh, in high school? Was it later on, you know, other schools? You know, tell us a little bit about sort of how you evolved as an artist and sort of some of the some of the sort of major points of, you know, interest. Well, so my mother and grandmother would drive us from Napa to San Francisco every weekend to go to German language school, which I absolutely hated. But I, re <laughs> I remember we would always go to this place called Tad's Steakhouse on Powell Street and you know, I'm like eight years old and I'm drawing little drawings and I actually took a piece of paper, folded it in half and wrote five cents each. And so I was already trying to sell art, you know, like when I was like eight years old. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then, you know, life took a few different twists and turns and, um, in San Francisco, inner city life and all of that. But I did take some art classes in high school, did a little painting. I was terrible at it. And then I moved to Santa Lina to live with my father. This is in the late 70s. And in the late 70s, terrarium making, macrame, sand candles, all, all those kind of crafty kinds of things was all the rage, including stained glass. And so he was trying to figure out uh, how to keep me out of trouble, which was definitely a challenge for him and for me. Yeah. Um, but he gave me a pattern of a stained glass window of a parrot, and I made the world's ugliest stained glass window, but I fell in love with this idea of something coming off my brain, off my heart, through my fingers, and actually crafting and making something. So at that moment, I think it was about 17 maybe, that I decided that someday I would do large-scale art projects that had a lasting positive impact on humanity. It was like one of those really big watershed moments. Yeah. And so that because from then on, I dedicated my life to, to what I still do today. Not to kind of, you know, stereotype this, you know, was there a patron? Was there sort of a group of patrons that sort of helped you, you know, n navigate you towards this kind of, you know, corporate world? No, not really. I just, you know, I didn't come up through the conventional 
art path, which is, you know, through, through school and the gallery scene and all of that. I really didn't have any time. Actually, I didn't even have any interest of going to school. I'm basically self-taught. And so, you know, just kind of a hustler, hardworking, show up every day and keep punching at it. It was more of a say, I'd say it was more of a series of watershed moments, success moments, and, uh, and a lot of um, failures as well. Sure. That, that I took a lot of time to learn from those failures. And then I think really what more importantly is that I'd, I remember deciding that I didn't want to work just in glass because I didn't want to work in just one medium because yeah. I would limit my opportunities to basically windows in right. churches and that right. sort of thing. So I actually, hard, I only do like one or two glass projects a year now. Everything else is, you know, multi-ton sculptures and that sort of thing. Sure, sure, sure. So how accepted is is this work? I mean, I think all of us, if we think about it hard enough, can probably think of a you know piece of art somewhere that that we've seen or that we can you know remember. How accessible is it um, in the industry, and how open is in the industry for what you do? Well, you know, there's a few different pathways to art winding up in these different developments and different projects. Uh, one of them is what's called public art, which is, you know, a municipality will have an ordinance that says 1%, 2% of the cost of the construction requires that you either the developer either writes a check to the city for them to spend on public art or the developer will provide public art on their property okay. for X amount of dollars. Yep. So when I first started, I didn't even know there was such a thing as public art. And then I discovered there was maybe 30 or 40 of those kind of ordinance across the country. Now there's more than 500. Oh, wow. Okay. So public art is very much a part of development, not everywhere and not every project. So, for example, residential projects typically don't have a public art load on them. So I we get our projects through uh, the competitive process, you know, typical RFP, RFQ, you know, and there's a committee and all of that. Or oftentimes developers like, I don't know, Lane Partners down in Silicon Valley or Tarleton Properties down in Silicon Valley, they realize that they probably have a public art load, but so they're not just, but but they're not just doing it to fulfill their public art obligation. Sure, actually understand how much value it brings to their project because it distinguishes their projects from from other developers' projects. It makes it more beautiful. It's better for their tenants. It's better for retention of those tenants and and all that sort of thing. So sometimes they'll just reach out straight to the artist, which is always my preference, actually. Yeah, yeah. All of these 500 places that have an ordinance, where are they? Are there certain parts of the country that you think this is more prevalent? Is it is it cities? Is it how does that break up? From my experience, I don't have numbers at the tip of my fingers here or the tip of my tongue, but my experience is it's across the board. You know, from from the flyover states to Florida and Chicago or uh, Iowa, yeah, places, yeah. you know, North Dakota. I mean, there's a really s strange mix. You'd, you'd wonder. So some of these communities taking on public art because they want to 
enhance their the livability of their communities. Sure. And, you know, and they want to kind of pull themselves up a little bit. And public art is one of those ways of doing that. And as a business person, how do you keep ahead of where these opportunities are? Is there like some kind of, you know, registrar where these, you know, things pop up and you guys kind of look at things and then you, you know, submit bids and then not to go into too much detail, but I'm just sort of curious about, you know, how, how you guys go about doing that. We have someone on our team that's dedicated to researching and identifying and applying. Yep to opportunities as we find them. Yep. So looking at it like on an annual basis, we probably submit maybe 150 applications wow. that we find okay. in a year's time. And of those, we probably make the finals maybe shortlisted um, maybe 20 times. Okay. And of those, we might win five. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's pretty brutal, but that's only one, that's only one source of opportunity for us the reason that we do it is because at least you know where that where it is sure. you know what i mean it's like sure, sure. When they asked john dillinger why he robbed banks he said that well because that's where the money is <laughs> right. so you know if you ask you well where where are the public art opportunities well i know where they are they're just really really hard to get yeah so all the our other other projects come really more from contacts that people that we already know yeah, it's been a, in the game a really long time, and like to think that we're respected and highly regarded in the in the development community. Are there certain projects, and I'm sure, like anything else in life, there are certain things that you would rather do, but these pay the bills, so you got to do the other ones as well. Or do you sort of look at it as kind of a artistic expression, and you don't necessarily distinguish between you know materials or types of projects in any in any specific way? Projects that are like under a couple hundred thousand dollars is kind of where we have to draw the line because yeah, this yeah. Just, just there's no return on investment on those projects. So the sweet spot is like between a half a million and a million, I guess, something like that. And I don't, I really don't really care if it's an airport or a parking garage or a city plaza or, you know, because I'm so versatile. The more, diverse it, diversity in the types of projects the better sure so and i should could say that my my creative capacity far exceeds the opportunities that we can find so i've got lots of capacity and we have like at any given time we might have like 20 25 projects going on at once so everybody seems to be busy but then i start pacing around and i want my next next challenge to go after you know yeah yeah gordon like any other business i'm sure yours was also in some way impacted by you know covid tell us a little bit about you know what that meant for you guys you know did it push some of these projects back did it open up opportunities i'm curious how what an impact this had for you guys well that's a really good question i've been asked that a few times and for the most part we were not negatively impacted in fact, there's some lots of positive things that have come out of this um, that I'll share in a moment. You know, one thing that we had been, my wife and I, my partner, I've been talking about is pivoting the business more and more towards a lot more outsourcing because the types of projects that I'm getting involved in are so large and I don't want to be uh, restricted to only things that we know how to make ourselves. So with this COVID thing hit, it just accelerated where we were already going, which yeah. was awesome. 
there was a few projects that were delayed, um, but they came back. And I really usually don't get too upset about projects being delayed because it's just something to look forward to down the road. Yeah. Um, what I what I don't like is when they go to sleep and they never wake up. So fortunately, so far that has not happened. Um, and we even picked up picked up a couple of projects with Jay Paul down in Silicon Valley right during COVID. I couldn't believe that there were people still building, but you know people were already had their projects going. And, you know, you don't just stop building right in the middle of something right, like that. So right. My partner, Darcy, just loves working from home. So don't see her during the day at the studio anymore. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, we really, we never, I never even heard of Zoom before COVID. You know, all these presentations that we go through um, or that we made, I used to have to fly everywhere sure. to do all those things. And, man, you know, you have a 45-minute presentation and it will cost you three days, yeah. right? A day to yeah. get there, a day to be there, and a day to get home. And now you just jump on a Zoom and you're done. Do you like that better? I imagine from an efficiency point of view, that's that's amazing. It is super amazing. It is super efficient, you know? Yeah. And I, I have a really talented uh, digital design team. They're in Portland. I have a really talented Brainiac engineer fabricator in Germany um, and a project manager um, down in Monterey and we get on a zoom call and you wouldn't believe how much stuff we get done. Yeah. And you, used to, you used to think that everything had to happen under one roof. It's not like that at all. And so it's, we're super happy. I don't think it's going to go back to the, we're not going back to the way it was before COVID. I don't think anybody is. I, and I think that's a very good point that you bring up. And I often try to, you know, tell folks like, you know, when we go back to normal or whatever, and I'm like, there's going to be a new normal. <laughs> it's not going back to anything, right? We've, we've never, as a human race or whatever you want to call it, right, gone back to doing things that we were doing in the past, right? Yeah, right. Totally. Yeah. Have you experienced, as a result of this, any you know supply chain issues? Has it been more difficult to you know get stuff done, transported, materials, um, sort of you know mundane kind of stuff, maybe on some level, but pretty important in terms of, you know, delivery. Oh, yeah. So, you know, on the logistics side, it's been an absolute nightmare. So, you know, since so much of what we do is, you know, fabricated by experts in different fields. So we have a project being made in the Netherlands. We have five projects being made in Germany. And so they come over in containers. Right. It's like a total traffic jam. You can look, they ship, they'll track your container for you. And you go, it's like on GPS or whatever. And there's these little, they look like little square bugs on the water. And it's just a total container traffic jam. So they don't even bother to even guess how long it will take. You used to count on it to get from, from Europe to here or from China from here, maybe four weeks. It could take easily eight weeks. It could take it could take ten weeks, and then your client's like, "Well, wait a minute. Where's my sculpture? I got to get my occupancy permit or whatever." Yeah. You know? so, yeah. Um, and then, for example, the price of steel has doubled, <laughs> and, and you get to wait a lot longer for it. Right. Right. There are there there are a lot of issues like that happening for us and a lot of other um, trades. Not just I know that. This this is an art studio, but really, for all intents and purposes, you know, it's a design build. We make things, sure, and we install things. It's a business, and so 
we have logistical headaches just like everybody else these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Zoom was a positive thing. It sounds like supply chain was was a negative thing. How else has the pandemic, you know, changed your business? Has it given you the ability to look more broadly, look more globally, look I mean, how do you as sort of a, you know, business person think about okay, now we can do this because it's a it's a new normal. Because of outsourcing different dimensions of the business that means that there's not as many full-time people on the payroll, which is good. But then when you outsource, it's also more expensive. Yeah. So it's bad, you know, so there's this kind of balancing act we're trying to do. I have this, I have a really gorgeous studio, gorgeous facility. Um, it's like maybe 15,000 square feet. And I'm kind of have more bricks and mortar than I need. Yeah. But, you know, but <laughs> But now living in Napa, if I wanted to downsize my facility, not downsize how much work I do. I want to do twice, three times what I'm doing right now, but I don't need as much space. But I can, I could maybe find something half the size, but it will cost you the same amount of money. <laughs> yeah. The cost per square foot, you know? So there's a lot of these, like, they're like puzzles. They're business puzzles trying to figure it out. Um, and I don't really have all the answers. You'll have to interview me some other time. <laughs> what's What's interesting about what, what you're saying, Gordon, is that you are an artist, but you're also a businessman, right? And you're you're talking about you know efficiency of you know use of you know square footage of the place that you occupy. You know th th these are very similar terms that you hear in in other industries as well, and especially in you know commercial real estate too, right? Where right. Uh, you know the end users are thinking about okay, I'm going to put X amount of workers here, but do I need or how do I'm, how am I going to utilize the space better, right? So it's interesting to hear these parallels on a very different level. We're a small business, but you know, it's pretty interesting to me and even like gigantic businesses have the same kind of issues and yeah. Um sometimes they have different approaches to the answer, I don't know, but it's kind of cool being a small business because you think you're by nature more nimble. Yep. Has your I think the answer here is yes, but I would love to sort of hear sort of how has your art and what you're deliver to a client evolved is uh digital media in, in a way becoming kind of a bigger portion, not a bigger portion, but sort of something that, you, that you're integrating more into your kind of work. Tell us a little bit about sort of how that's evolving also, uh, you know, for you, for you as a, as a, as a creator. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't really get involved with the, what they call digital arts, I guess, where like projection of images moving around and all that stuff. But, but the digital, but digital technology has really changed the way that I work, I guess I'll say it like that. So back in the day, I would make a model, let's just say, and then you would take a picture of it, yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or you bring it somewhere or whatever. Now I don't have to make as sophisticated of models because I can just fold some paper and then take some pictures and then get on the phone, get on a Zoom call with my digital designer and tell them what I'm thinking about and how I'm thinking about it and what it could be. And then we get the um, fabricator engineer involved in those early conversations. And then I wait a few days or a week or whatever, and then these beautiful renderings come, come back at me, and then I can change them. And I don't know, it's just it's really great. That I'm not sure that digital, the digital world has been 100% great for the sure. whole world. <laughs> Yes, but, uh, right. But you know, I don't really have any choice because that's how it's done now. Yeah. Um, I used to go around with my slide carousel, 
you know, and click through slides on a presentation. Well, we don't do that anymore right. either. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You can do it on your phone, essentially, and just open up your Photos app, I suppose, right? And do do the same sort of clicking motion. What about materials? Have materials evolved? Are there things that, you know, you're doing differently or new, new things with, with, you know, stuff that you maybe didn't do things with before? Yeah, so there's the kind of classic materials let's say glass and steel let's just say those two right that's pretty straightforward oh you could say cement and bronze so just kind of these building materials that are used for well for buildings they're used for making sculptures and that sort of thing so you know we still have a lot of that going on but you know there's also composite materials now and fiberglass been around for a while of course but we're this airport we recently finished in salt lake city is made out of aluminum tubes and fabric. Uh, I don't remember how many square miles of fabric that was okay. used, but yeah. but the tubes, you put these straight tubes into this machine and it forms it like a CNC machine. It's kind of hard to explain, but <clears throat> so the, the short answer is yes, very much so. I don't really look at the work that I do and telling a story, let's say for a developer, for in front of their property or in the court, wherever it is, and whatever story I'm trying to tell, I don't look through the lens of what materials I know how to use. I look at it as what's the story that wants to be told yeah. and what could this thing be? And then I'm just surrounded by really bright people that start researching different materials and how can we get this done? So, um, you know, there's the world is our oyster. Yeah. Over the last 35 years, as you said, as you've kind of done done this business, what have been some of the biggest lessons that you know you would maybe tell a young artist now that you've learned well you better put on your daddy pants um it's rough it's rough out there you know you got a one way of looking at art for some people would be well making really expensive things that nobody needs uh, but, uh and go out and sell that you know what i mean and so but of course i believe that humanity needs art yeah of course i think that but what I would say to a young artist is you're just going to have to work really hard and every day and don't ever give up. I mean, you got to go in with both arms and both legs and find people that, that you respect that can mentor you. You know, there are artists along the way that um, either I knew them from a distance or I got to know them a little bit closer up and trying to figure out what are they doing? Not what they're doing stylistically. Yeah. But what are they? How are they getting their projects in the first place? And you know, it's. I think for a lot of artists, uh, the idea of money kind of makes them uncomfortable. Like it's somehow immoral, or you should be doing art just because because of art and all that. You know that idealistic thinking. And I've never really been that way. But I've always thought that if I don't have a transaction. If I if there's not money flowing through, then I don't have any money to buy the glass, or I don't have any money to buy pencils, or I don't have any money to to rent or own a studio. You know, it it it, it really money matters. So my philosophy kind of is, um, I'm all about art, love, and money. So art is obviously what I do. Love is passion for what I do, and those first two aren't even possible without the money part so um 
you know, I, if I have a talented engineer, talented fabricator, talented project manager, they're not here for free. Yeah. So, so I would encourage a young up and coming artist to try to look at things both through the art lens, but also look through it through the business lens. Yeah. Yeah. How do we get the industry to think of art as something that is, you know, necessary, something that is needed, sometimes something that, you know, adds humanity, if you will, to to the space and to the environment. What would be kind of your sales pitch, if you will, to the industry? Not just one specific developer, but let's say to folks in the industry in, in you know, general. Well, I would start by encouraging someone to try to picture a world without art in it. And art means performing arts, art means music, art means beautiful architecture, art means beautiful cars. You know, so it's about beauty and it's about edifying the spirit, your own spirit and the spirit of humanity by surrounding yourself with things that are are beautiful and meaningful. And so if I drive by developer, Mr. Developer's new project and there's no art, the architecture's not that great. The landscaping's not that great. Oh, that's so depressing. That's so depressing. What if you had really dynamic, beautiful architecture and really well-thought-out landscape design and really beautiful art integrated into your property? Well, it should be a sense of personal pride that that's your project. It certainly should. I know for a developer, it's about the square foot, you can charge a square foot and finding a client or excuse me, a tenant. If you give them something that's really inspiring and they're excited to go into that building every day, art will help you get there. Gordon, as we close our conversation here, how can folks find more information about you? We have a pretty robust website. It doesn't have everything that I've ever done on there, but it is, like I say, robust. And I'd encourage people to go to gordonkuther.com and check it out. And there's an easy way to contact us through there. And there, you can also sign up for our e-newsletter that we send out pretty regularly um, that seems to be very popular. We have about 15,000 people that receive that newsletter, and it's um, visited pretty often or click rates pretty high on that. So, yeah, that's just go to the website. You know, we're open to the public, so if anybody wants to come visit, on Napa, in the Napa Valley. So do some like some artisan food, some artisan wine, and some artisan art. It's all right here. Excellent. Gordon, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Stay well. Right on, Vlad. See you later. Thank you for listening to the Real Perspectives podcast. Stories like these help us shape our understanding of the industry. And we appreciate you taking the time to listen to it. Please follow us on any app where you get your podcasts and tell your colleagues about us. Thank you in helping us spread the word about our work and the industry that is changing the face of business.